Hello and welcome to part one of the first episode of the Sheffield Health Insurance Talks podcast series. Sheffield Health is a global talent consultancy in people and transformational change, helping individuals and organisations to reach their potential. In this series of podcasts, we sit down with business leaders in the insurance industry to dive deep into the fascinating world of insurance and gain valuable insights from those at the forefront of this ever-evolving industry. In the first part of this two-part episode, Nick Roscoe, Managing Director in our insurance practice, talks to Mark Huxley about his long and illustrious career spanning over 40 years in the industry, having dropped out of school at age 17. They talk about Mark's passion for social inclusion and his work with City Gateway. In part two, coming soon, we'll get back into what the insurance industry can do to help address social mobility. So sit back, relax, have a cup of tea and enjoy part one of the interview with Nick and Mark. Before I introduce today's guest, Mark Huxley, known to many as Hux, I will try to frame what social mobility is. In work terms, it's the ability of individuals to progress their careers based upon their innate talent and their potential, rather than being held back by a system of social hierarchy. In insurance terms, the question is whether someone from a lower socioeconomic background, who hasn't had the same educational chances, will find it harder to begin a career in insurance and will find it more difficult to progress their career than those who began from a more privileged base. Unfortunately, the data says that it will be more difficult for them. There is a framework to address this. It's the 2017 Social Mobility Foundation, who created the Social Mobility Employers Index, which ranks companies based upon certain criteria. And these criteria include working with young people, routes into employment, attracting new staff, recruitment and selection, career progression and experience hires, advocacy and data collection. And data collection as the ABI state is the starting point. So in 2023, KPMG issued a report entitled Reshaping DEI in Insurance. In this report, they say that only 29% of insurance companies collect social mobility data. The situation in Lloyd's seems to be even worse. The Lloyd's 2022 culture dashboard states that only three firms in total collect this data. This shows that we have a very long way to go. So turning to you, Mark, Mark has had a, a long and illustrious career in insurance. He's worked in and around the industry since 1977 when he began working for the insurance brokers Andrew Weir. He began as a broker and worked for a number of companies, including the long-lost but not forgotten syndicates 471 and 144. He's worked in claims. He's worked in operations. He's worked in innovation, technology, and consulting. He's also the senior warden of the Company of Entrepreneurs. But for today's purposes... I want to get Mark's views based upon his breadth of experience in and around insurance, his own story having dropped out of school at age 17, and his work at the youth charity City Gateway, where he is a fundraising board member. So Mark, how did it all start for you? Because no one plans to get into insurance. We all fall into it. What happened with you? Well, firstly, good morning, Nick, and thank you for inviting me along. So without turning this into a very, very long history story, uh, in the classic way, as you said, it's not an industry that people 
She is a first choice. Um, my father worked in it. He was at uh, then Charles Taylor, which was the, the very small P&I club at that time. And having decided that uh, education wasn't for me anymore, he, just, he also decided I wouldn't spend my summer sitting around. So uh, that's where Andrew Weir came in because that was one of his clients. And they, they very kindly offered me a little bit of kind of summer work, which I think in today's language I would have been an intern, but I was just there for some summer work. And Walked into Lloyd's uh, the the day after I started on that that summer summer session. Just fell in love with it and thought, you know what, this is for me. Uh, this is where I'd like to be. So so that was the start. Father father kind of got me into the market, and I was working as a junior claims broker. Um, the the small defining oh, sorry, well, it's not a small thing. The major defining thing that that took me on from that point was tragically my father then died six months later. So at the age of seventeen, there I was. Now, not quite in the summer job, I had decided I was going to make insurance my career, but I was kind of left alone in the industry and left to kind of start and find my own ways. And that's that was something kind of reflecting on today's topics about the, the socioeconomic and, and the, the background part of it. I can't argue I don't come from that background. I mean, I was born in the East End, but yeah. I was more of a, uh, a freak of where I was born. I went to grammar school. The reason I dropped out of school was way too easy, so I could, could do it. But the great thing was the city kind of welcomed me in and actually with the tragedy that went round, it put its arms around me and gave me a, a smart way forward. So in some language, which I think we'll, we'll unpack more as we go through this, you know, there, were, there were two kind of camps in, in the Lloyds world in the 1970s at that time. You had the, the classically professionally qualified, clever people that were making sure businesses ran well, they had good conduct risk uh, and that side of it. But there was also a very healthy community of what you might call, you know, socioeconomic and neurodiverse people that actually I just describe as smart people. They were the people that invented things, they solved problems. And there was a nice balance between the two, which was will be good to unpack as we, we go through through that today. So classic dad in the industry, started from that point, self starter. Okay. So tell me in in the in the seventies and eighties in the in the early days of your your career, what what was it like? In the insurance market in London, so we were chatting just before this, and I think you came up with a wonderful phrase that it was a trade, not profession. If you look at insurance today, it's a professional industry, not not a, a trade. Definitely working in Lloyd's at that time as a, a trading market and a bourse. It was a trading market, so you had all of the kind of cultures and aspects that would go around that that trading market. I mean, there were two hundred plus. Small businesses, market storeholders, the Lloyd syndicates that were sitting in there, all micro business, all single annual ventures, lots of buzz going on, lots of invention going on through Lloyd at that time. You know, society would change. So if you look to today's world, new environmental risks or cyber or crypto, you would drop that into Lloyd in the 1970s. And by the time it had worked its way through the, the room once, it would come out the other side with a fully put together scheme uh, and, and would work. There was a lot of reliance because they were small businesses. No, no business could dominate the market at that time, so everybody would need to work together. So there was a much stronger collegiate reliance and you know, kind of symbiotic ecosystem that sat between the two. So it was big, it was buzzy, it was analog, of course, because you know, sure. we were we were in very early days of computers. But it was it was somewhere where. The superpower of the market that, that made it shine out as a beacon was that diversity, was about, I wouldn't say a lack of rules, because obviously there were rules, but as you 
No, Lloyds was self-regulating at that time. So it can make up its own narrative. So it was really good. Uh, a, a, a kind of acquired entrepreneurial phrase. It was really good at building the plane while it was flying it. You know, so yeah. stuff would come in and it could make really good decisions in real time. And, and very human, I think, if that, that was probably a good word to describe as it was at that time. And so at that time, were there more or less glass ceilings? Could anyone achieve anything there? Was there a, a greater freedom to to develop? Or, or, or yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I think probably intellectually there were less glass ceilings than there would be now because it was fundamentally an unregulated market in that sense. As long as you met Lloyd's, Brawls and Bylaws, you could trade. So actually those inventors, and some of them became fabulously wealthy in that time and did some fabulously good things for, for the market and didn't necessarily come from the clever backgrounds, as I'll, I'll keep describing, smart and clever. So that side of wasn't a glass ceiling. I guess much to the economy at that time, if there was a glass ceiling, it was you know money bought ability, bought privilege, bought power, bought capability. So if you were from a, a poorer socioeconomic background, you were probably having to work that little bit harder to get yourself started and be accepted. But once you'd earned that trust and trustworthiness of the market, it would accelerate you through. I can't lie. I benefited from that as a kind of described minute or so going back the market, put its arms around me to, to help me through that, that personal tragedy, but actually really fast-tracked my career. So if you look into the equivalent of today's economy, you know, having come into the market at 17, by the age of 24, I was running claims for Lloyd Syndicate, 144, you mentioned. There was a huge kind of vocational investment in me. The, the business recognised stuff in me, so it invested heavily to make me kind of intellectually the, the businessman that I became. So they were definitely pulling those glass ceilings away, and it was about you're the right person um, that was sitting in there. So there was a lot less of it now. You know, definitely a lot less you know, kind of conduct risk that would have held me back yeah. in that time. And the great thing was, by the time I then got into my thirties and, and decided I wanted to stop playing my own trade, which is where all the entrepreneurial stuff comes in, the market had well established me. If I look now, would I have that opportunity? Probably not. In truth, at that pace and at that that way, you don't think the market puts its arms around people? I mean. Do you think it can? Is it regulation that's made it more difficult? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think the, the structure of the market makes it more difficult because yeah. they're corporations, not little sole traders. These were small businesses with you know, SMEs with a lot of agility. So there are less of those. So naturally, the, the capability of the market to do that is diminished because they've, they've got to you know, manage shareholder conduct risk um, sitting in. So yeah, I, I think you would struggle in today's economy to, to see people working that, that same way and can it do it any business can do whatever it wants to do it's what it chooses to do and I think therein lies some of the issues that have come up you know it's maybe for reflective reasons of the problems that, that Lloyd's went through in the early 90s you know it's not on my watch again so it got very defensive sitting in so it probably put a few more glass ceilings at a lot lower levels to make sure if people were, were going to crash through them they were doing it in an organised way which has brought a kind of sterility and a vanilla blandness to the market of the kind of people that succeed in the market now. So the kind of outliers, social economics, the socially mobile. Is there a structure for them to succeed at the moment? There's a desire to do it. Is there the right system to do it? Probably not. You, you quite rightly called out all of the reports that you put in, some of the statistics, some of the data that sits in there patently shows that it's failed to do that in the last 25 years. But maybe this is where we're at the start of a you know kind of a new era and the new dawn where 
diversity, inclusivity, and equality has, has come to the fore. So earlier we were talking a little bit about the the greats and the the people who really shaped the market and led the market. You know, the true brilliance in the seventies and eighties. Who were the, the, those those people, and, and what was their background? So I met a couple that, within the context of this conversation, definitely comes to mind. There's a a legendary reinsurance underwriter that I had the, the absolute privilege to sit on the, the box next door to him, a chap called Brian Cordell, Syndicate 780, if my memory serves me right, who was, you know, kind of classic, you know, East End, Essex, let's use the phrase Barrow Boy, that, that came into the market. Brilliant mathematician. I mean, the, the things that would go on in his head and the way he could calculate and consolidate huge complex information and just make right decisions. You know, so he he defined a lot of what the reinsurance market came to stand for at that time. So he would definitely stand out. And as somebody as the old fashioned market personality that would be on there. Uh, on the broken side, you know, we 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 both came up with um Matt Harding. Uh yes. you know, kind of tragically died in the helicopter crash, um, but you know, Chelsea owner, but you know, a legendary figure in the broken world. So again, just did things in a different way. I'd put uh, maybe a, a, another, a, in, in a still trading contemporary figure that, that's in who started a wee bit after that time, but I think does stand out as an exemplar of divergent thinking, breeding success will be David Howden. And I think, you know, what he's done with Howden insurance brokers, and if I'm allowed a life hero, in the insurance world, and I don't know David, but David, if you're listening, you are one of my life heroes. You know, they, I, they'd like to meet him. <laughs> yeah, just as a, a natural entrepreneur who you know started with the pop frog yeah. opening a suitcase on the corner of somewhere, and that wonderful empire is built. So they would sit in. In my personal life, um, I ended up the the underwriter of the syndicate um, that I worked for. One four four became Syndicate Two One Eight, which was public. If you read Star, and we were a non-marine business within it. Um, my underwriter at that time, a chap called Alan Whitbread. Who came from a, a kind of um, regional broking background, but came into Lloyd's as a broker, ended up on the syndicate. Again, just a, another another great natural mathematician. Didn't come from that classic clever background, but just navigated that market really well, very successfully. And actually, yeah, his skill was kind of UK short sale fire, uh, um, yeah, personal commercial. And you, you look around the kind of peer group of. Uh, some of the folks that, that were in that market at that time, um, chap with David Flett, who ended up at Faraday um, running their, their UK business. I think his dad was a policeman um, by trade. Uh, John Clare, uh, who came in uh, worked for Peter, Peter Foden, Patson, Syndicate, whatever that was at, at times past, but ended up setting up a very early MGA in, in the current form and did very, very well with that, sold it on to Amlin. But do you think there were more uh, contrarian thinkers or people who would take a contrarian view on risk? Isn't that where the money always gets made? Interesting use of the word contrarian. And I know in stock trading it has a particular view of people taking different positions on, on stock trades. I'm not sure that's the right frame to use in the insurance industry. Um, those kind of what you might describe as you know, the outliers, the smart, the inventors we were talking about. It, it, in a classic phrase, when people ask why, I ask why not. You know, And I count myself in, I think that's what's defined my career. Is I never accept the status quo, and those people never accepted the status quo, so why can't we do it that way? Yeah. So it's not taking alternative views. Sometimes it would just be validating, okay, well, fine, I've checked it a different way, and that is the right way of doing it. But actually by you know, kind of 
incremental product evolution and innovation. There was definitely a lot more of it in those days because people would try something, it wasn't quite working, they would, you know, they had that build the plane while they were flying it, agility to to say, right, well actually let's move on, let's do something and let's try something different. So there was a construct in the market that had that ability to do it. And that why you you would, you know, see what would become regarded in our lifetime as those kind of legendary f- figures that were in the market. Uh, and we won't name them because some of them were very successful, some of them were spectacularly failing, and some of them actually caused directly some of the problems that Lockheed then suffered and endured in the early 90s. So it's best we consign that to its own history. But to put it into a today context, and again, to keep contextualizing this back to why do we need social mobility to come right to the top of the, the corporate agenda, is there was so much good that defined somewhere like Lloyd's that became this you know, beacon that shone out across the world of insurance, the globe of insurance, much larger than the, the financial construct of the market, dare I say it, to today where it's never been bigger, but actually the light has probably never been dimmer because it's just a rinse and repeat of what every other yeah. mid-tier and above corporate insurer is doing, backed by many of those same companies. It's lost that that ability to invent. It's lost that ability to have that, that kind of um, diverse, neurodiverse agility that comes in. And that's what I try and do in my day jobs. You know, that's where the, some of the social mobility things I pull in because I, I think this market will be a better place if you get some of those people back into the market under controls, under a regime, under the regulation that sit there now, but just to let them go and event and let them go and you know, set the labs properly back up. I mean, you know, I mentor at the Lloyd's Lab and yeah. very proud of the work I do there. And I think the Lloyd's Lab has hit a fantastic rhythm in what it's doing now, but it's a microcosm. You know, it's yeah. a, a third of one floor in Lloyd's. It's not the whole of Lloyd's. It's not driving an economy, you know, and that's what social diversity, different economies, allowing people to feel, if even if they're coming into the business, to feel included and they've got equality and equity with their counterparts and they see role models in a business. That's a culture thing. That's not a strategy by business. And that's with respect to, to those running these businesses. This is where they've got to start driving these agendas to bring this social diversity back into the market. So we've got a Slight feeling there on, uh, or we've got a good feeling there of how things were in the 70s and 80s and the ability to move and what the culture was like. So if we, let's move forwards to, yep. to today. There was a, a very important uh, report done by the Bridge Group, which is a non-profit consultancy, which uses research to promote social equality issues in the financial services industry. And this report showed that today, 89% of leaders this is in financial services, not in insurance, have parents who worked in professional occupations. And the employ- it also shows that employees from low so- lower socioeconomic backgrounds take on average 25% longer uh, to progress. So in our business, we work out specifications in search. And uh, we are asked quite often when we get the first requests, it's with like university or equivalent. Uh, some of them say Russell Group. And then when you look across the industry, there are graduate schemes all over the place. So there is definitely um, uh, a slant towards demanding higher educational qualifications. Do you think that in this environment that we have today, it's more difficult to get into insurance if you're from a lower socioeconomic background? And also, do you think it's more difficult to progress? The more difficult to get in, I think, is a construct of these corporations and their people and performance policies 
where they are seeking out what they consider to be the best talent. And I think we, we've said more, I've said more than enough about the, some of the narrowness of thought that goes on in there. It's very easy to get in. And I recognize that 89% because you have a parent that's in that peer group because, you know, my dad was a lawyer. I'm going to be a lawyer. It's, it's a kind of a, you know, a natural evolution thing. So I definitely get that. I definitely recognize there is a desire within organizations that they want to, to bring in a broader church of congregation of people uh, in, in, into the industry, but they're not, they're not really set up to do it. And again, I, I say this with respect and regard to boards that are active, but anecdotally, and I can just characterize you know, many of those that I, I come into contact with, these kind of things are just seen as number 27 on a board agenda. They're not seen as part of the culture driven from the top. So it becomes a, a middle driven, right, I'm going to empower my people in performance. I need you to go away and tell me what's our DEI policy. And they bring it back and it gets discussed and discarded or included, but it's not part of the culture that's driving the firm. So that's why it's a limiter. That's why you recognize many of those numbers and why the pace of change is so much slower because it's, if it ain't broken, don't fix it. You know, we're not quite broken yet, so why are we trying to fix something? We'll just fiddle around on the edges of it, which is not the answer. So definitely harder, definitely those of a poor background, and particularly if they don't look like some of the people that sit in front of them. So I don't want to get too kind of controversial around gender, race, and the other side of it, but there's a lot of mirroring that goes on in organizations. And while they might even, when I say look like each other, they might physically look different, but actually inside they represent the character of the people that are employing them. So that's where the, a lot of the grand stuff comes in. So I think it's worth, you know, definitely a call out to, in this context, some of the work that, wonderful work that Carol Wagstaff's doing at the London Market Group and their London Insurance Life project, where they, they themselves have looked in, into it. And anecdotally, their start point was there's quite a, a horrible average age that's sitting in there. Uh, of, of the employee age in the market, which will vary between the 40s and someone in the 50s. Whichever way around, that is not a good number. You know, that needs to be in the 30s if we're looking at new generation talent coming in. And, you know, Caroline's come to realise much of what you characterise there, too much reliance on grant schemes, trying to get into universities. With all due respect to the wonderful insurance industry you and I have had a, a long life in, it's not seen as a first port of call. If I'm going to go into professional services, I'll go somewhere else and insurance is a, if I can't get a job anywhere else, I'll come to that place. So it's not, it's, it's, it's not being seen as a sexy industry to a, a, attract next generation talent. However, by the work that she's been doing and, and again, without oversharing, but you know, Carol and I spent a bit of time chatting to each other, she's now going much into secondary schools. And actually, it's getting some really good response because there is a curiosity amongst the 16 to 18-year-olds, some of which that probably won't go to university and won't go down that route. And actually, with some wonderful video assets that she's been creating, is showing you know, quite how insurance is the economy that drives every other part of commerce because without insurance, nothing in the world would happen anywhere, anytime. You know, nothing we're doing today would happen without this industry being in place. And it's becoming a very attractive proposition. Early starts, but she's having some some great success doing that in there. And again, you know, using this this opportunity, if I might commend to to many of the corporate leaders that will be looking at this and you know, working with you to look at next generation talent, just go in with you know eyes wide open, you know, a, a clear mind and, and a clear heart about 
the characterization of the people you need to work for you, not the qualification of the people that you think you need to come in. And I think if you do that, we'll quickly move to a much better place than we are at the moment in getting new talent coming into the industry. Wow, that really was fascinating. Hux has certainly had a varied and interesting career. Their discussion around the need for diverse talent to continue innovation in the industry was really, really interesting. Join us for part two, out shortly, in which we'll look at some of the issues that Mark raises and what can be done to address social mobility in the insurance industry. Until next time, thanks for listening.